When they talk about their aspirations for post-conflict, fragile and transitioning states, diplomats and development donor officials frequently use the word governance. This word is often used in different ways to describe many different things, but in general, Western actors place a strong emphasis on strengthening the capability of government, meaning the elected or appointment institutions and officials who make up the formal definition of the state. But if a state means its formal system of government, a nation is made up of the people who live there, and implicit in the Western development thesis is that the structures and actions which influence those people's lives need to be governed and that best outfit to do so is the formal state. This means that governors become essentially defined as a relationship between those who govern and those who are governed, making the willingness of the former to govern in the interest of the latter, and the willingness of the latter to be governed by the former, the linchpin of the Western social development prescription. Does this really work in practice though? In many countries around the world, the formal government is seen as best as interfering hindrance and at worst as a predatory or exp exploitative threat. My name is Matilda Martin, and in this edition of the Taglines podcast, we look to unpack governance and the relationship between government institution and the people it governs and what it means for practical donor programming and project delivery on the ground. Joining me for this debate is Vassal Choyni and Morad Alkadi. Vassal is an international community security and policing reform expert from Ukraine with over 20 years of experience working across Eastern Europe, the Caucasus, Middle East and Africa. He currently leads the community engagement component of an ambitious programme of governance and security sector reform in Jordan. Morad specialises in the management of conflict reduction and peace building programmes with a particular focus on community engagement. Over the past 10 years, he has worked with numerous and diverse communities, civil society groups and social movements, overseeing work to equip them with the tools and skills they need to take control of their own trajectories out of conflict and towards sustainable peace. Welcome both. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. So let's go right into it. What really is governance and how would you both describe it? Morad, perhaps we'll start with you. Thank you, Matilda. So governance, um, it means a process that strengthens a sense of common purpose, mobilize resources, implement projects and influence leaders. And it, it meant to be to promote participation and representative participation, transparency and accountability and peaceful change. So this is the short definition of governance. Of course, you know, there's the good governance, which is the um, better version of the governance, let's say, and it's the higher goal where all entities try to achieve um, in their um, work in the communities. Vassal, would you agree with this? Well, absolutely. Thanks a lot, Matilda. And I would probably add a little bit that from the perspective of the international development world, it's also very good to look at the governance. And I think I do agree with the thesis that it's a relationship between those uh, who are gov governing and those who are being governed. But I would like to look at it through the stability lens because this is uh, relates to their level of satisfaction of the services provided by those who govern and to those who agreed to be governed. And it's directly relate, directly proportional to the stability between there is direct proportional uh, formula between the two uh, things, stability and the level of trust. So there is a stability and satisfaction with the communities, which is underlined by the trust, 
I think this is where we're talking about the level of satisfaction that could progress the governments and good governments further. Mm, interesting. So does the idea then that central aim of social and political development should be to strengthen that relationship that you mentioned, does that hold water? Is that the key aim? Or does that make too many assumptions about what the state really is and what the people want it to be or how it should be applied? I would probably start with saying that there we need to strengthen the capability of delivering the services to be able to satisfy those who are being governed is more important than just strengthening the relationship. I think strengthening the relationship would be implied by the level of satisfaction of the, of the communities with the services provided. Because again, it also definitely put additional pressure, pressure on those who govern and the international uh, actors, who are international development actors who are trying to assist those who govern to provide better quality or provide good governance, as Morad mentioned. I think that's important for us and for the for us in the international development actors and for the government to understand the needs of the communities where the level of satisfaction lies. Mm. Morad, what's your view? Um, I agree with Basil, and I think um, the governance in general, as a process, provides increased opportunities for interaction and fosters the cooperation across traditional divides, uh, building social capital, and helping to break the cycles of intercommunal and intergroup tensions. In addition um, to building stronger relationships within and between communities, then the good governance can strengthen the relationships between the community members and the local government, businesses, civil society, all, um, let's say, all um, divisions of the community. When it linked with a formal governance system, the process of mobilization um, can increase a community's influence on government decision-making and also it can enhance the legitimacy of local government in the eyes of it is of its um, in the eyes of the communities in the eyes of uh, um, constituents. So mainly, um, the governance could be the step one to increase the cooperation between the different entities and different uh, community divisions. However, the good governance is the ultimate goal of the process. And, and speaking of, of the relationships, you mentioned the community. You know, often I think that we, we end up looking at, at gover governance through the lens of government, which is often placed in the capital. But what is the relationship like with the communities in the wider country? What would you say is your experience of, of governance at that more local level? How does it differ from what I guess many think of when we talk about government as a more central entity? Morad. Um, so, uh, unfortunately, uh, here we are talking about um, the government as a concept, not, not as um, a practical um, process, which I mean that if you look at it from the communities, the representation itself is not enough to say that we have a good governance. What I mean, I mean that um, having like a representative from the youth, a representative from women, a representative from different entities, doesn't mean that you are applying a good governance within the community because there is um, many questions about the selection process, about if they are of those representatives really represent us, represent our ideas and so on. However, 
here we, 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 we need to talk more about the inclusion in, 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 so people can see that they are well represented um, within the, the, the government decisions, within the government processes, then, then we can say that yes, this is the good governance. How much effort government can put within the community in order to achieve the, the good governance, how much inclusivity and engagement they need to achieve. So it is the formula of if you increase the level of engagement and inclusivity, then you, you increase the level of governance. So everyone have the opportunity, the right to um, hold the government the responsibility and themselves as well, and also to be accountable of their decisions within their communities. So that obviously explains sort of good governance, as you say, and, and that's what, what most countries aim for. But what about when a country is going through a transition from, let's say, an autocratic form of government, so top down, very controlling, to a more, to a more democratic one? Could you maybe give some examples, Basil, of what that might look like and what the states might try to, what steps they might try to achieve on that process towards good governance? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, a very interesting question, Matilda, because it links to what we've just discussed uh, very much. And it's also about their, what authoritarian legacy leaves behind and how it cripples the transition based on the community side. It's not only about the government, as Mora just said, I think it's composition of the both, readiness of the government and capability of the government and the readiness of the communities to be absorbed into the democratic ways and norms of the governance. So it's basically both sides because going coming from the uh, experience from the totalitarian post-Soviet era, for example, I could say that there are different, the key main probably problem that I could underline is the crippled ability to make a decision at the individual and community level, because for decades, the authoritarian uh, regime were trying to eradicate that from the communities and from the individuals. And their individual decision-making is the basis for the democratic way of governance, is the basic for any democratic society. So this is one of the keys. And then you can actually unpack that into different areas, starting from the making a decision on the international geopolitical vector of the development of your country, talking about electoral awareness and decision-making, lack of accountability mechanism and oversight mechanism, economic policies, and being unable to swiftly transition from the government control to the market economy, and also never talking about the uncontrolled corruption. So I think all those coming up from the inability or expectations when you drive from the uh, authoritarian regime into the democratic forms of governance, inability of individuals and communities to be able to take responsibility on the factors that I just mentioned, and rather than expect still a new government, not that much authoritarian, but still to make decisions for them. Yeah. Morad, what's your experience on this in the more transitioning states? Um, usually we need to take in consideration um, the different, um, let's say, angles of that. What I mean, I mean that good governance in any community, in any country, even if it goes in a transition uh, period, there is three main uh, pillars that we need to focus on. Empowered and engaged citizens, responsive and accountable decision makers, skilled and connected civil society. If we have 
those three pillars, then the transition will be very smooth, very easy, and it's only the thing that we only need to work on is the relationship building and the trust building between those three pillars. If any of these three pillars not exist, then definitely the transition will not, would, will not happen because either the um, decision makers, could be the government leaders, whoever, will take over the communities or communities will not accept those decision makers and will fight back. And there is many examples from um, uh, the uh, Middle East. For example, if you, if you see the transition in Tunisia, for example, that gives you a, a good example. If you see the transition in Egypt, could give you also a, a good example. So you need those three pillars in order to balance the, the power dynamics within the community. And definitely, they together need to work on the relationship building and trust building between them. Then the system of the good governance will lead this transition. Mm. I mean, that's, that's a really interesting point because I think we often, again, we come back to thinking about government and the relationship with government and government entities at community level. But, but often in transitioning or even transitioned states, uh, structures for non-government, they interact with the community even more than government actors. So in those sort of thousands of examples that we can talk about who look not to the government, but to traditional tribal or customary leaders and systems, what what is your view on how to perhaps shift that towards a more formal government system? Should we even attempt that? Or, or what is, is there really a, an answer to that question? This is why I mentioned that empowered and engaged citizens, and I mentioned skilled and constructed civil society. Because, because in, in, in almost in all countries, there is um, 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 uh, civil society uh, space or civil society organizations, um, there is um, engaged citizens, but they are not empowered, they are not empowered, there is civil society, but they are not skilled or connected. And there is decision make makers, but they are not responsive. So this is the formula. Um, in order to, to reach that and make sure that you are not against also the traditions, for example, you are not against the context, you need to contextualize the concept of the governance within the community. However, in order to, 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 to make it success, you have to make sure that we have um, those empowered, connected citizens, engaged, engaged citizens, we need to make sure that we have skilled, connected civil society. And also, if we don't have that much responsive, accountable decision makers, the empowered, engaged citizens and the skilled, connected civil society, they will push the decision makers to be responsive. The, the danger part is if you don't have those skilled, connected civil society. Why? Because those civil society, they have the responsibility to empower communities as well. So in most communities, for example, the main problem and issue we have faced um, um, within the Syrian crisis, that there is no skilled, connected civil society organizations. So although, um, although we try to build, for example, the capacity of people, empower them and so on, but we face this gap context-wise, even for them as a new approach and so on. If we had a skilled and connected civil society organization, 
it would be very smooth because the trust between their civil society organizations will be much higher than me as a foreigner come to them and work with them and try to empower them to be um, more like engaged within their communities. So what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to tell you that uh, it's always again the same formula. This is why we need to have this balance between those three pillars and also this is why we have to take in consideration the context, the context itself, the traditions, the culture, um, and in order to be able to come up, come up with um, 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 a contextualized concept of governance fits with specific country, but there is no one size fits all. Yeah. Vassal, what's your view? Well, I think like I think very good points raised by Morat. And to add to that, I think I will be coming also to what we just discussed uh, in the beginning of our podcast when we talk about the inclusion and decentralization. Because I think this is a very important two factors that would influence whether we need to rewrite uh, informal mechanisms that govern the communities or whether we would like to incorporate them with the formal ones, with, let's say, Western approach, how we see it should be. But sometimes we forget to learn that there are certain countries actually uphold their stabilities because of the certain dynamics in the, within their communities and their dynamics based on the cultures and traditions that are being present there. So I think like, I don't want to go too much into the examples, but I think again, being in Jordan, having a great example here, there is definitely something to learn from when it comes, for example, to the access to justice on the minor offense. When we go into the Western world, there are people, and when it comes to access to justice, we all come back to the level of satisfaction, whether being satisfied of the outcome or not. Sometimes what could take years in our Western countries, Western approach, including, in, for example, in Ukraine, because we adopted the formal approach uh, to the justice, versus the justice that could be served much quicker on the minor offenses, for example, which constitute probably 70%, 80%, or all the access to justice discussions and conflicts and disagreements that could be served much quicker by the insert, uh, informal mechanisms, which is interesting dynamics, which paired up with the formal uh, formal traditions. And again, talking about the UK, UK used to have also great strong systems of the informal justice and conflict resolution mechanisms. They are still present, maybe with a much, much shorter representation right now. But this is something that I want to say again, Decentralization, inclusion is important for it right now, because if you don't include all the community representative, especially young members right now, which is very critical for the Middle East currently, into the discussions, you might face a big problems to your stability in the future, especially now in the huge era where strategic communications and the role of propaganda plays a vital role in stabilizing or destabilizing a state. I think that we very need, we need to focus that very much. I'm glad you mentioned that because I'd like to get your views on the existence of different demands for different types of governance, which you've touched upon, the contextualized elements. But seen from the outside, you know, the, the sort of Gen Z Facebook generation and their involvement in the Arab Spring, where they wanted more open government government governance, really, uh, and perhaps less autocratic government, that might have been different from the more conservative older generations. So 
can you tell me a little bit about what you've learned or what you think that we might be able to learn from such things as the Arab Spring or indeed the the involvement of strategic communications in in revolutions or in, in governance? Vassal, do you want to go first? Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, I mean, interesting question because what you see, I think it's very good that you mentioned the generational aspect here because it's very important for us to understand that sometimes with the aspirations that could could have been raised for certain community groups, especially if, uh, in our case, it was young people, without a clear knowledge what to expect, what would be the end result, could actually lead to the bigger problems and more increased instability in the region. This is from one side. From, from another part, I would like to mention also, again, you mentioned the Facebook users and social media role. I think it's very important. Yeah, we've heard the role or we've heard the demands of the younger population. But did we do justice to those who were not present and online, but who hold, still uphold very strong positions in the communities? What were their perspectives? And have we tried as international community and those who were leading the Arab Spring to accommodate their interests and demands to make sure that the smooth tr transition and their support would allow this transition from the more centralized to more democratic processes happen smoothly. I mean, Morad, I'd be interested in your view because whilst uh, as a, you know, having seen the Gen, Gen Z, the Facebook sort of uh, supported Arab Spring, at the end of the day, did it, did it really change the way these countries are governed if we look at Egypt and, and some of the other examples, or was it just simply a shift in government? Morad, what's your view? I think, I think starting from the Arab Spring even um, uh, sentence, mainly you can see that, so the results or the outcomes of the Arab Spring gives you a good um, overview about what, 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 what was um, aimed to be and the, 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 what, is, what is currently um, um, the situation. So there is a gap. There is a huge gap between what they expected and what they have now. Um, mainly even if you talk to um, um, uh, the most affected um, um, communities from the outspring, which is the Syrian um, communities, it, they, 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 they will say it clearly that this is not what we expected. Back to your question regarding to the Facebook and the young generation following the Facebook and or following social media. Um, uh, again, starting from people writing over Facebook and trying to um, start uh, creating the change they want through the social media. And social media could be the platform where um, young people thought that they can use it as a, as a free space and safe space. Unfortunately, it's not a safe space, but they, they were trying to use it as a safe space to explain and express their emotions, their needs, um, um, and the, the, the feelings of um, uh, injustice, um, and so on. However, they found then that it wasn't the right um, uh, platform because other people, they use it and they formulate it in a way to create the Arab Spring in a way that did not even serve or at least 
met the expectations of those youth people. Um, and this is, uh, to be honest, usually if you go to any community in the Middle East, there is like there is the claimed spaces, there is the invited spaces, and there is the safe spaces which is not exist. There's those safe spaces usually could be provided by the civil society space. Back to the same point again. If there is no um, 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 uh, civil society space, then there is no safe space. Then young people and others, even the different generation, generations, they would be look for any safe space, and the social media could provide this. Um, um, theoretically, but in fact, it's not. So here's the gap. Um, um, I have worked with different, um, like young people in different communities, not only in Jordan, in different countries, and they were like trying to, again, using the different apps of social media to express themselves. And they think, and still thinking, that social media could provide them with this safe space so they can say anything they want. Then. If you notice that most countries now they have their own like um, and the the um, uh, the laws to organize the use of um, Facebook or other apps in order to avoid also the hate speech and also to avoid um, um, directing those social media to um, activities like Arab Spring or other um, could be um, violence um, activities within the communities. If we provide even internationally, if we provide this safe space for those communities so they can express themselves, then we have those three pillars that I mentioned before, then we can have what we say, what we call it, the good governance, and we can also have a good representation, inclusivity, and very good community engagement within the communities. Questions? Yeah. So I'd like to add what Again, agreeing to what uh, Morad mentioned about Facebook being a, a sort of a bubble for the young people to exp- or to have a safe space, I think it's important for us to learn from this experience and to see to create a cross bubble coordination and interaction. So whether it's an online offline space or between the two, it's very important for us to make sure that there a new safe space and the ability for them, for the use or for the marginalized groups, uh, traditional marginalized groups to express themselves, not to become an exclusion space itself. And to add to that also, I think there is another important point because we've seen some initial successes in some of the countries in in the Middle East following the Arab Spring. But there's a question about the timing, how quick and how far can you move with the reform process and the transitional processes? and whether you, we as international community are not pushing too quick and jeopardizing their tangible and very fragile successes that have been gained in the beginning. Mm. So, so following on on that, Vassal, what would you say is a realistic timeframe for change? Because if we look at governance systems in Western Europe, it took centuries to develop, frankly, and what we might, might now call good governance often came as a result of civil war, bloody conflict, etc. So is there any way we can meaningfully accelerate good governance uh, or are there potential risks and, and what are they in your view, Basil? Well, I think it's a very interesting question. I think there is no formula that would fit all. I think there would the, the common uh, pattern that I would probably advise given like 
my experience working internationally is the proper baselining using the program management language, proper baselining of the country profile or the communities you're going to work with. Because that would help you understand how quick you can move on with the processes that you would like or the people would like you to assist to be introduced as an international implementer or international. Having said that, it doesn't always work well with the donor timeframes, as we know perfectly fine in this world. But I think this is something for us working with the uh, relevant uh, embassy departments of the donor countries to make sure that we could explain the benefits of the longer term investment and going s slowly with their particular approach. Sometimes it could be faster because like I can give you two examples from, uh, from the region that I'm coming from and that I've been working on like uh, two totally different examples of Ukraine and Georgia, where one country coming from the same post-Soviet uh, legacy were able, because of their government, new government approach, to absorb West assistance and move rapidly on the reforms, had initially gained successes on several items that I mentioned before, the barriers, when barriers when you go through through the transition process into the democratic uh, to the democratic uh, business i would say they made a, a, a progress on some of them but they miscalculated themselves the ability of their population to absorb the change and then it's actually fired back and we see the slide back into the more of authoritarian pro soviet type of form of govern governance so, and the same, the, another example of Ukraine where the formation of the civil society, again, talking about three pillars that Morat is repeatedly mentioning about, I think that formation of civil society in Ukraine took a bit longer. And just because that the war has started and there was a threat to the governance in general in the country, it helped to consolidate all the processes and move faster on the anti-corruption front, on making economic change, economic policy changes, and making sure that there is a strong foundation for the civil society to drive the country forward. So it's very two different approaches. There is no time frame, one formula that you could give, but knowing their country, knowing the culture of the people, and knowing where they're coming from before you start the processes with them would definitely help you define what is the best pace you can move on? Absolutely. It'd be, it'd be so great if we could do that proper baselining before we start work in developing or transitioning countries. But if looking... I, uh, if I may add to that point, uh, Matilda, so 100% um, I totally agree with you, Basil, and I believe that there is no specific time frame for change that we can um, say that um, three, two years, five years, whatever. Uh, it's, it's a very quick two points. The first one is, in addition to the baselining, we do also a conflict analysis and social network analysis where we can understand um, the conflict drivers and the peace factors in, in the community, where we can work on the conflict drivers and transform the conflicts in the communities to opportunities, then we can create the sustainable change and sustainable peace we are looking for. But also, we need to take in consideration also the political sphere in that in that community. We need to take in consideration also um, the um, uh, social networks in that communities. We also usually dig deep to understand the level of the community resilience 
and the social cohesion in that community because from the two angles the community angle if you have um, 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 uh, a high level of social um, cohesion and resilience and if you have um, 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 a good level of engagement um, and good level of civil society then the, the, the other angle, which is the government, you need to have um, 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 at least um, um, a political sphere allow for this change in the communities. Because if you have a very ideal community for the change, but you don't have that political sphere, then this will be the wall that the change will hit and cannot pass. Um, so you need to work on both sides. This is why usually we do kind of advocacy work on the government level and do more work on the empowerment level with the communities in order to bring them together and close that gap and make sure that there is the political sphere and there is the um, community will readiness um, 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 uh, to um, um, go for the, for, for the change. So that's really interesting because obviously you're talking about sort of both a top-down and bottom-up approach and to square the circle of getting an engaged civil society and having the political leadership and buy-in, you need to do both. Just to sort of finally bring us back a little bit to basics, what does strengthening community engagement in civil society mean in practice on the ground and what works and what doesn't? Could you perhaps give us some examples of what you think has worked and what you've learned and what we might be able to implement in future development programs in fragile and conflict affected or politically transitioning states, Morad? Yes, sure. Um, I think, um, again, it depends on the community, but um, as, um, as um, um, something we, we, we do for all communities, regardless of the different of the type of the community, um, we can say that the first step is we need to make sure that for the communities, they need to make sure that their voice is there. I mean that the government hears their voices. So the first thing that we work on is not building the trust because the trust takes very long time. And building trust, it goes with the, with, with during the work. And we can't just bring people together and say, "Yalla, let's build the trust." And it's not it's not practical. So first, they need to see that government they hear them and they took them in consideration. Um, on the other hand, government, they want to see that the communities um, also holding the, um, the, the responsibilities, I mean the social responsibility of the change in the communities. So if we bring the community with the government, where government, they trust that communities not there to change the, the government. They, they are there to change the um, um, procedures, they are there, there to change the, um, um, the approach, but not the government itself and for the communities if they trust that government here they are listening to them they are taking in consideration their opinions their voices are here then that that this will be the first step and the second step um, definitely asking them what they want both sides not to decide on behalf of them unfortunately usually um, different international organizations programs they come to the community with a ready agenda to work or ready program to work. They don't even ask or bother themselves to ask the communities, what do you want? Also, they don't bother themselves to ask the government, what is the problem there? 
So we need to ask them, we need both communities, government to decide what exactly they want. What is the ideal situation? What is the current situation? And how we can fill the gap between them? And communities, they better know. Government will be able to uh, then, um, let's say, design um, a good programming with support and help, technical support, let's say, from those internationals and the international programs. Great, thank you. And Basil, would you have anything to add on that, on what we can learn and what we can implement on future programming? Well, I think like in addition to what Maura just mentioned, I would like probably to say that definitely when you come uh, to the communities or the uh, population uh, in the fragile or conflict affected or transitioning states, there is a certain level of expectations in the communities and there is a certain level of services provided by the government, which we call in generic term a relationship. So which are work, some of them work well, some of, work, of them don't. Normally we come and we assume as international partners that none of them work well and we try to work across the spectrum rather than focusing on the problematic areas, real problematic areas, which again, here we're talking about community engagement. It's about the level of satisfaction with the community services. Trust will come later when there is a satisfaction or perception of satisfaction. And here I think also we need to keep in mind the level of importance of the communication or strategic communications because we are living in the century in the century of the robust exchange and transfer of information which also could be a great enabler but a great spoil also a great spoiler to the continuous strengthening the stability factors and uh, factors within the any given country so i think for the government and for international uh, actors to focus on transitioning from a one-way transmitting role of communication of the government to two-way two-way communication where you accept the feedback or you ask you provide and you receive the feedback and then you repeat the process again with the multiplying your efforts on those areas of cooperation between you civil society and the communities that work well to give the positive examples of the interaction this is where you could level you reach the level I'm not saying the level of satisfaction, but the level of the perception of satisfaction in the communities, which you could definitely continue building on. Great. I'd like to thank you both so much. You know, those are probably raising more questions than answers our debate so far. But to, to round off our conversation today, I'd like to ask you a question that I ask all of our guests. And that is, if you had unlimited money, what is the one thing that you would invest in to support positive and sustainable good governance? Morad. Uh, it's a very difficult question. Um, only one thing. Yeah, I think um, I will invest in the education system. I mean, because the government comes like, like people, people in the communities, they are poor going through the education system. So if we have a very good education system, where in doing we're in this education system, we can empower, learn the good governance concepts. Then people, when they um, at the end, people they will go as a government representatives or work with the government or in the communities. So both will speak the same language and they will understand the concept of the good governance. So it will be very easy 
to align with each other in order to achieve um, the change. The, the only obstacle will be that the political atmosphere where they can overcome the political atmosphere together using um, non-violence tools because they are well educated. Great. And Vassal, what's the one thing you would invest in? Well, I think you touched very close area that I was about to mention, but I was about to say youth. I would invest youth as the that, that population uh, percentage that you would like to make a change in. And then education comes in with the, but not just education, education with the ability for people to learn how to apply critical thinking. Because that definitely minimizes the risk of the internal and external destabilizing factor to influence the future of the country. Great. Well, thank you both so much for your very insightful conversation. What I've really taken away from our debate today is that good governance is a two-way system and it comes from balance between contextualized community engagement and a formalized government that listens. So having those two parties work together in a positive manner is really the only way forward. Whether we can achieve that in any sort of meaningful short-term timeframes, I think it's still to be, to be seen. We have seen it in certain countries as we've debated today, but there's still a long way to go for good governance in some of those transitioning countries. And I'm glad to have you both working on those issues. So thank you so much for today. And we hope that you listeners will join the debate by subscribing to, to us at Taglines on your favorite podcast platform or to visit the Taglines hub at tagindev.com where you can comment or share or take the conversation with, forward with one of us. Thank you so much. Thank you, Matilda. Thank you. Thank you very much, Matilda. And thank you very much for inviting us. Thank you both.